Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Council. On September 15th, we gathered a group of speakers to debate the benefits of building a minerals and royalties portfolio around diversification versus specialization. Darren Geiger, CEO and Portfolio Manager of Cornerstone Acquisition and Management, and Kevin Lorenzen, Co-CEO of Momentum Minerals, both argued in favor of diversification. Ran Oliver, CEO of Viking Minerals, and Jacob Nagy, Co-CEO of Avant Natural Resources, both argued in favor of specialization. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what everyone had to say. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. For those of you who have registered from overseas, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Tim Powell, the SVP of America's for Oil and Gas Council, and I'm excited for an interesting discussion here. It's our second minerals and royalties focused webinar. If you tune into the last one, this one's going to have a bit of a different look and feel. We're going to have a debate format, walking through the pros and the cons of building a portfolio around diversification versus specialization. So it should be a lot of fun. Before we jump in, quick plug on Oil and Gas Council. For those who don't know us, we're a worldwide executive level networking platform that looks to facilitate intros and accelerate BD on behalf of our clients. So specific to the minerals and royalty space, we help connect minerals companies with each other for deal flow. We help them connect with investors, either for capital raising or for exits. And we put on a variety of networking functions, minerals and royalties CEO dinners, minerals and royalties conference with the New York Stock Exchange, Mills and Royalties Conference in Houston. We've started a Mills and Royalties podcast. If you haven't seen that, I'd love for you to check it out. We have these webinars. We have a partnership with Provis Energy Services on their Pulse Reports. And you have myself bugging you every day, phoning you, looking to catch up on the mineral space. So if we haven't spoken, I'd love to catch up, develop a relationship, understand your strategy and connect you with our network in a time where we can't travel and have lunches and go to conferences like we normally do. Let's go ahead and jump in. I'm going to go around the horn. Let's start with team diversification. So first, I'd like to start with Kevin Lorenzen. He's the co-CEO of Momentum Minerals. They're a private minerals and royalties company with financial backing from funds affiliated with Apollo Global Management since 2013. They have a diversified PDP heavy strategy with a core focus on the Bakken, Haynesville, Permian and Eagleford. And as of a couple minutes ago, they have a, an exciting announcement. I'll let Kevin go into that in a little more detail, but they just finished the raise on their second fund. So congratulations, Kevin, on that. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate that. It's actually our third fund, but the momentum too. So we're excited about getting that going. So joining Kevin on the team diversification is Darren Geiger. Darren's the CEO and portfolio manager of Cornerstone Acquisition and Management Company, a privately funded minerals and royalties firm with a diversified PDP strategy across the lower 48. Then on team specialization, we have Ran Oliver, the CEO of Viking Minerals, who's a privately funded Eagleford-focused minerals and royalties firm that has a co-investment partnership with KKR and the Eagleford. Since 2012, Viking Minerals has deployed capital across three different Eagleford-focused funds, is now currently focused on fundraising their fourth fund. Ran, good yep. morning. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, and then Tim. lastly, uh, but not least, on team specialization is Jacob Nagy. He's co-CEO of Avant Natural Resources, who's a private minerals and royalties firm with a targeted focus on the Midland and Delaware Basin. Avant is currently deploying capital across two funds, which have financial backing from a mix of institutional and family office investors. So without further ado, let's jump in, gentlemen. On the topic, on the theme of diversification versus specialization, let's start with investment structure. I think who your capital comes from, the criteria that your investors have, I think that largely 
shapes whether you have a diversified or a specialized strategy, right? The, the amount of capital you have to put to work. So if you can put a little color to that, just raise your hand who wants to kick it off and then we'll start the discussion. Darren? So with Cornerstone, the genesis of Cornerstone was to offer investors really a conservative and intelligent way to gain private oil and gas exposure in a relatively liquid investment vehicle. So we utilize somewhat of a hedge fund private equity hybrid structure, whereby we're acquiring private assets through our investment funds that offer enhanced liquidity when compared to your typical uh, PE holding periods. Uh, we've achieved an excellent risk-adjusted return following that format. Over our tenure, we've always somewhat preferred managing a more diverse portfolio of assets. Diverse doesn't equate to necessarily anything or anywhere. We try to acquire in long life, low production decline basins, as well as proven higher growth areas. So we're never a first mover in any given play. We need to see what that production profile looks like over several years in order to confidently somewhat forecast forward output cash flow given commodity price expectations. So we perform a, a significant amount of due diligence on that, but, but we look to acquire where we feel the runway for continued development can offset a good amount of inherent leash in our production decline. So in our view, really, as you said, opening up your investment structure, return expectations, and source of capital can significantly dictate your portfolio composition. For Cornerstone, we're highly yield dependent. We have investors coming in and out of the funds on a recurring basis, so we're very sensitive to material impediments to production and cash flow. So our structure also cannot overly rely on a long-term development play or a way to multi-year commodity cycle uh, turn. So we, our experience is that, again, selectively diversifying our portfolio geographically and amongst operators reduces numerous risks that can be detrimental to return. Uh, that being said, for those with, say, PE backing, a five to seven year runway and targeting PE type of investment returns, certainly, you know, concentrated investments acquiring ahead of development or waiting for a, a cycle turn can work. Kevin, why don't you jump in and then we'll hear from the other side. Then. Yeah, I can echo most of what Darren said. We are a yield-focused fund. Our investors uh, crave that yield. That being said, we're obviously chasing PDP. With the amount of capital we're trying to deploy on an annual basis, we've got to buy PUD with that, which we think allows us to create a portfolio with downside risk protection with that PDP and then upside running room, you know, chasing the rig and the Permian and elsewhere. Awesome. And before I get to the other side of the fence, I'm going to launch a poll, everyone. The poll question is, building a minerals and royalties portfolio around diversification is the ideal strategy given all the uncertainty and volatility in today's market. So if everyone can vote, agree or disagree, and you know, while you vote on that, we'll start with Rand from Viking. So, I mean, specialization is the tougher one to argue here. I think uh, diversification, everybody benefits from that. We chose to be focused on a singular area for a lot of reasons. One, just economics, rock quality, operator strength. We can hang our hat on that. Over 95% of our funds have been deployed under ConocoPhillips and EOG and the Carnes Trough area, the Eastern Eagleford. So I think that gives us a lot of comfort. You know, we're not by PDP only, we're by a lot of PUD, but again, I think the narrow focus and asset quality trumps some of the trepidation we have over maybe a portion of our portfolio that falls out of favor for a period of time. We feel like this is an area that will always remain, for the most part, in favor and competitive globally. 
Jacob? Yeah, you know, I actually agree with a lot of points the diversification panelists mentioned, especially as it relates to the yield focus. You know, our funds are extremely yield focused. You know, we target double digit yield and have achieved that across our first two funds since we've started at the beginning of last year. But I think for us and what dictates our specialization is really our size. You know, each of our funds are sub 100 million and that prevents us from taking a lot of shots on goal and we can't effectively have our finger on the pulse a lot of different basins at the same time. So for us staying focused in one basin and actually, you know, our first two funds are really hyper-focused in a certain part of the Midland Basin kind of allows us to achieve those return hurdles that we promised to our investors while delivering the yield. And so that's, you know, that's the main reason for our specialization. By the way, let's see if everyone's conversation here can sway the vote by the end. We'll do the poll again at the end of the discussion. But as of right now, 78% of the audience agrees that diversification is a good strategy. So Rand, Jacobs, it's on you. Let's jump off with this. How do you guys define specialization? So this is an interesting one. I think there's multiple definitions. Jacob, you're specialized in the Permian, but within the Permian is a Delaware Midland. Within the Midland Basin, you're hyper-focused on a few counties. So you can continue peeling that away. Within that, I'm sure there's certain tracks, there's certain operators. You know, Rand, you talked about 95% of your, uh, your minerals are under two operators, right? So can you be in four basins, but specialized? And I'd love yeah. everyone to jump in on both sides. I think, I think you can look at underlying economics and raw quality first and look at that across more of a global platform if you've got break-evens in a particular area. And a lot of these areas, I mean, Conoco, for instance, they've got 250,000 acres, but there are sub areas that are somewhat nuanced. But you look at the break-even economics, and that's a prerequisite for us to see that rigs are capable of running in an environment where you have $36 to $40 oil. That's an important thing for us. And then, you know, operator balance sheet strength as well. The ability to withstand that and not wonder in two years' time who's going to be operating this acreage. Is it possible for those two companies to sell? I suppose. Very unlikely. And we feel comfortable with that. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. I mean, Darren, you guys are looking for more long live assets. You said you have a defined diversification strategy. So there's some specialization within the diversified world, right? I mean, can you kind of speak to that from that angle? Well, certainly, as I stated before, we're never, say, first movers in any given play. We, we want to see what that production profile like over a, over a number of years. Secondly, we don't, obviously, we don't do anything offshore. Anything that, that can add to a higher element of risk or potentially could impede production, even some Gulf of assets, weather um, can, can be detrimental to the yield for periods of time. But from, from my perspective on the specialization front, obviously there's very positive pockets of assets. I mean, the Permian, for example, our experience is that by trying to focus exclusively in 
acquiring assets in that location is the assets are typically so bid up that the economics leave very little margin of safety. So for us, we'll look outside of the Permian, let's say, where two thirds of U.S. production is occurring for potentially better economics. Diversification, but yet not everywhere. It needs to meet our, our economic hurdles, but, but certainly there's plenty of places to look. Jacob, I mean, being super hyper-focused within the Permian, any similar comments to Rand, just from a Permian perspective or anything to add? Sure. You know, as you mentioned, we're hyper-focused in a certain part of the Mid-Basin right now. We have kind of a count, I'll call it a county plus that we typically target. And for us, it's important to distinguish between specialization and concentration. You know, obviously we're concentrated in the Midland Basin, there's no arc there. But, you know, what we try to do is spread our chips around in the target area, not being overly concentrated in any single unit, but having enough exposure to all the units in a specific area that we really like surface from subsurface standpoint. And that way, as the rigs move around and you get well results, you know, one, you'll have constant activity across your portfolio. Two, you, no unit's going to make you, no unit's going to break you. And that's kind of mission critical for us. I think a lot of folks who are specialists or hyper-focused in certain basins tend to take concentrated. think that's where you can have some footfalls, especially in times like these. But as long as you're spreading your chips around and, you know, more, you know, an ETF basin type manner, I think that's where specialization can really thrive in a basin like the Permian. Kevin, I think you guys are diversified in that you are more of a PDP heavier buyer, but you like to blend in that undeveloped component in order to deliver the returns for your portfolio. So you can kind of speak to both sides a little bit. You want to expand on that? Yes. I mean, the ideal scenario for us is we kind of get a toehold position, heavy PDP concentrated position. We like the operator. We like the rock. And then from there, kind of put our boots on the ground strategy to work and acquire PUD to kind of give us a balance. We want those near-term returns with the PDP and we want that upside down the road. And hopefully that upside is, you know, we're in an area chasing where the rigs are running. So I'm going to put the diversified guys on the spot here a little bit. There's a saying called jack of all trades, master of none. You know, you can definitely, in this environment especially, you can sing the praise of diversified strategy all day long, right? Oil price goes negative in Q1, Q2, COVID. There's political headwinds with infrastructure. There's all these things. And you could, if you have a diversified portfolio, like, man, I'm sure glad I'm not, I don't have all my eggs in one basket in that area, right? But at the same time, if you can't be an expert everywhere. And so the specialized players out there will say, well, we're going to beat you all day long in these areas and you're going to overpay. And so at the end of the day, it's all about making money. The strategy is, I think, is secondary. You guys are all in this to make money for your investors. So I'd love for both sides to argue that, right? Like why, you know, Rand, we spoke offline about you've been in that basin for almost a decade and the on the ground relationships and how it takes 10 plus conversations to even get to a discussion around selling minerals. I mean, and, you know, maybe if you're specialized, it's all about realizing that value on the ground. So who wants to kick it off? Well, I can start. So again, from the diversified standpoint, I mean, we spend a lot of time understanding the macro environment, where we are in the commodity cycle and act accordingly. So deciphering secular versus cyclical changes. And we utilize that to first identify we're in acquisition or hedging mode or potentially want to divest assets. But if you get that right, you can add a, a material amount of excess return irrespective of your portfolio's diversity or concentration. I think second, a lot of the financial and modeling due diligence transcends among 
amongst basins and operators. That being said, each basin obviously does have its own set of attributes, including commodity type, quality, lifting costs, differentials, so forth. For the engineering side of our analysis, we outsource that to a top tier petroleum engineering firm, often specific to that area. And in many cases, we use the same engineering firm as the operator or operators of those assets. So, so again, that gives us the insight and the specialization on a very targeted regional focus of the assets that we're looking to add to the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Jacob, I'd, I'd like you to jump in because uh, I just know from conversations we've had that you're happy to buy aggregated packages. You're not purely a ground game focused shop, but you're also extremely specialized. So where Darren's kind of looking all over the country and outsourcing, where do you kind of find the balance in, in making the model work for your portfolio? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. We have a lot of guys on the ground. Yeah, that's certainly a specialty for us in terms of sourcing our deal flow. You know, we we know the area that we're focused on in the Midland Basin so well that we can really take some targeted strikes in terms of the assets we want to acquire. But, you know, for us, I mean, we have a pretty robust technical, in-house technical team, finance team, accounting team, and land team. So we do everything in-house. We move really quickly. And we're finding in this environment, it's not just a ground game anymore. The way that some of our competitors or or some of the smaller aggregators were set up to aggregate these mineral assets just weren't built to last through a cycle like this. So we look at everything, even if it's marketed, it's our model and we price it at a return profile that we're excited about where we're not afraid to do that. And I think as a specialist and focused on a very specific part of the Permian, you have to look at everything. You have to take very calculated shots on goal. And for us, especially as a smaller aggregator, every shot matters. So we'll look at everything and and price it accordingly. And and if it works, we're, we're really excited about it. The other thing too, Darren, you mentioned this, just there's nuances within each basin. I think the mineral owner culture is one thing that comes into play quite a bit. And Rand, you can speak to that, the culture of the Eagleford owners. A lot of them are larger. They're sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. The basin came about a much different time than the Permian or the Midcon. And so you're looking at something that was discovered in the shale era for, you know, look at the Pearsall and things that were happening before that. But the most part, this has been a prolific basin since the mid 2000s or late 2000s. So by nature, you've got a less transactional base of mineral owners there. It's a very rural and hyper local area. And it's not uh, third generation mineral owners who are pros. And you do get a lot of that transactionally, I think, in the Midcon and Permian from the experience I've had there, which is admittedly not as much as these other guys. But that's why a ground game is critical for us and constant contact and trying to become a, an influence. The person that gets the phone call when somebody wants to sell in Cuero or Carnes, Carnes City or wherever. And it takes years to put that together. And from our standpoint, we don't do any competitive bid processes. It's all negotiated individually with the sellers. And that's been really almost the exclusive way we've done business for the last five, six years, which allows us to really put our portfolio together, hopefully at a wholesale as opposed to retail price. And then concentration back to being specialized should lead to a simpler exit. If we're going to exit at some point in the future, we've We've only got three counties and two operators to underwrite. And I think that makes, hopefully, people will get more comfortable with our package and our assets and our funds and an outsized return for our investors. And Kevin, I know you guys have stuff all over through legacy funds, but primarily for basins. So there is a bit of a focus there. Do you have the in-house capabilities, do due diligence and underwrite stuff? Are you outsourcing it? Yeah, we do a lot of heavy lifting on the front end, do uh, basin-wide studies, third-party basin-wide studies. We'll study that data, and uh, we basically have built silos here internally with our team. 
So uh, we are on average seeing about 140 deals with a value of roughly $250 million a month. So churning through those deals is, is not always the easiest, but we have built silos internally. So we think it's possible to be an expert in every basin. We obviously still employ a ground game as well. So like everybody on the panel today, you really have to come at this stuff from all angles, chasing deals. The next question I want to follow up on a comment Rand made about it's easier to exit with a very concentrated, specialized portfolio. Everyone's a seller at some price or some market condition. I mean, Darren, you guys, you've sold basically once, right? In almost 20 years, you guys look at the macro environment and you assess what the strategy is around that. And so you made that large exit to Haymaker years ago. So really exit is something everyone should think about. There's the argument, like Rand is saying, that I'm in a really concentrated area with great operators and that's easier to scoop up, it's easier to digest. But what if you're at the wrong end of the timing uh, spectrum there? There's basis blowout, there's oil price crashing at that part of your fund and it's just the timing's off. I mean, Kevin, you want to give a little uh, background on that story, uh, that deal in the Delaware? Oh, yeah. A couple of things to really talk about. I mean, obviously, right now, taking a large, diverse portfolio to market is not in, I don't think, anybody's best interest. You know, we need more IPOs, more liquidity, more interest in public mental companies from generalist investors. You know, if you at Brigham's portfolio, for example, great portfolio they put together. 12% of that portfolio, I think, is under Oxy. I think most of Q2 was running a rig. I think since added a couple. But that's, you're leaning heavily on Oxy. <clears throat> Pardon me. We uh, purchased a deal in 2018 in Pecos County. And Jacob, you may recall this deal under Rose Hill. There was a duck on it at the time. That well has come online, is in pay status. The well is underperforming. Rose Hill has obviously filed for bankruptcy and they're running zero rigs. So, you know, that's a, thankfully, we, it was a small bet for us, but having diversity it has allowed us to kind of overcome that particular investment. Jacob, where are you guys at in, in terms of optionality on exiting? And clearly yeah. you're putting together a pretty concentrated position. Yeah, I mean, luckily our investors are prepared to hold this for the long term and, you know, would be happy with us producing this out. But like other folks have said, we're for, we're for sale for a price. You know, you know, I was a banker for over a decade and did a lot of transactions, you know, M&A and A&D and certainly put a lot of packages out market. I got to see what was positively received and what was the challenge. And I think for us, we certainly took an approach of, you know, almost from as if we were putting together an operated working interposition, you know, trying to block it up as much as we could, you know, as Rand said, just make the story really simple for somebody who wanted to take a look at it, you know, very limited amount of type curves, the right operators and not too many of them to understand insight into development patterns and, and pace of activity. And so that's really every time we do a deal, no matter how small or how big, we always look at it in terms of how it fits in with our portfolio as it kind of continues to grow in, uh, in size and scale and make sure that we don't lose the story element that hopefully we'll one day bring to the market and will be easy for you know larger aggregators to digest. Darren, your firm is the longest standing on this panel. So you have the luxury of looking at decade long trends and cycles and acting accordingly. I know you had told me you guys exited a DJ position. You saw the headwinds a couple of years back and decided to get out. The factors you're analyzing when you're building your portfolio, just a multiple of things. And we can kind of use this as a segue into talking about political risk, building your portfolio. But you want to kind of speak to that since that was smaller divestor, but one nonetheless that you guys made? 
Yeah, certainly. As you spoke about, our sale of Haymaker uh, years ago was more of a macro call, whereas the more recent divestment was, again, a big weld position that we had in Colorado. We exited that in early 2018. Obviously, we all know about the political risks state by state, and you know there, there's some untouchables, New York State, I would argue California. But as we you know enter more of the ESG movement, Colorado's becoming more of an untouchable, potentially New Mexico, depending on the election here in November with the amount of federal lands and so forth. So you really have to pay attention to the political aspect. And we just didn't want that exposure any longer as the energy hostile initiatives increasingly found their, their way on the ballot. So we're, we're very tuned to what's going on state by state and, and act accordingly. Yeah, I think that's mission critical for our strategy as well. I mean, we get a lot of questions, you know, we're, we're a Denver-based company and people look at us and think that maybe we're Rockies focused, but, you know, we identified that risk pretty early on in terms of the regulatory challenges and, you know, even parts of the Permian, as Darren mentioned, you're challenged, but all of our strategies, I would assume, take into account a lot of different variables. And what we try to solve for is reducing the standard deviation of each variable to come to a predictable range of outcomes. And these the binary risk associated with the, the political challenges is just one that our investors and our company will never take on. Ren, you made a good point about just focusing on the ego fruit, but just it's in Texas. And you know, Jacob, you can it's the same thing for you. You looked at that as just a macro level hedge, right? Right. I think I can make an entire career out of Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, maybe, maybe North Dakota. I mean, there's plenty of resource there. There's plenty of operators. And those are two, a couple of historically great basins. And you can get plenty of commodity diversity between those three states. My point is don't overthink it for me. That's we'll go battle where we see very little regulatory risk. And not only that, not only head, a lack of headwinds, tailwinds from understanding local economies and state governments. Is anyone buying or looking at the New Mexico, Delaware? I know there's a lot of concerns out there with the elections coming up, what's going to happen with those federal lands. I think staying on the topic of the debate here, diversifying and having overrides and fee mineral in your portfolio are saying, no, we're only fee mineral. Any thoughts on that, especially with the recent challenges? I mean, maybe up in the powder as well and anywhere else that has federal lands. Anyone want to jump on that? You know, look, I think an override on a federal lease, you got to be cognizant of obviously politically what's going on. And it's certainly a concern of ours. The lesser prairie chicken, uh, the Texas side of the Delaware, I think years back shut stuff down. So you never know kind of what's going to pop up. You just kind of plan accordingly. And we think by having diversity in other areas outside of uh, primarily federal lands helps us protect and, and mitigate those risks. Yeah, we've looked at New Mexico super hard, love the rock. You can make the argument that it could be some of the best rock in the entire country, as we know today. With that binary outcome, if, if a frack ban were to be proposed and passed in the coming years, it would just be terminal to that strategy. So for our, us and our investors, we're steering clear of that for now. It's just not worth the, the risk at this time. What about infrastructure, guys? So you can talk about discounts on pricing. You talk about political headwinds again with infrastructure development or, you know, stuff being shut down. You know, so Appalachia is, is an area that is infrastructure challenge, the Permian's infrastructure challenge, but proximity to markets too. So, you know, being in the Haynesville, Kevin ran Eagleford near Gulf Coast refineries, line of sight to LNG markets globally. Let's just talk about infrastructure at large and then peel the layers away. Who wants to, to jump in? 
Look, May 31st, 2018 through October 31st, our realized average price off of WTI was almost 25 bucks in the Southern Delaware. It's tough to plan around that. You know, that just kind of shows up on your check stubs. So if 100% of our portfolio were in the Southern Delaware, we'd be struggling from it. You know, I guess a lot could be said going forward on what's going to happen with uh, Dakota. So as a 100% Bakken focused fund, you're going to have those issues as well. So certainly having diversity by region, we help, we think helps us out in regards to differential blowouts. And I would say on the flip side of that, just being specialized in an area close to the Gulf Coast, we get Louisiana light sweet pricing, trades at a premium at WTI. That is a benefit to us and the infrastructure and the proximity is tailwind for our play. I would just echo, uh, again, kind of what, what, what Catherine stated. There's infrastructure challenges that pop up from time to time in, in various basins. As you mentioned with uh, the access, we're talking about a pipeline that's been online for three years. It takes approximately 40% of Bach and crude away, and it could be shut down. So that's not going to be potentially terminal to those that have exposure to Bakken, but it's certainly going to increase the differential by, let's say, 4 to $5 a barrel of that if it has to be you know, trucked or railed. So again, it's just something that we want to diversify away from instead of being, again, specialized for one certain basis. We kind of have a different approach. I mean, our philosophy has always been before we enter an area, make sure you check every single box as if you were an operator. You know, while we looked at parts of the Permian, like I've mentioned, Southern Delaware being one that was logistically challenged. And you know, when we factored that in, that kind of made the Midland and certainly part of the Midland that we're focused on rising top. I think it's also really important to focus on the operator and understanding their capacity to bring your product to market. You're more or less beholden to their, their marketing agreements. And so understanding guys who might have pricing power and transportation power is important factoring into your, your acquisition strategy. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset rethink and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks, now let's jump back into the episode. Just kind of a food for thought too. Do you guys look at the water space and what EMP operators are doing with their water management, strategic partnerships, you know, that all can lead to efficiencies on the operational side and driving costs down. This is very much a Permian specific question, but yeah, I'm just wondering if everyone's kind of looked at that level of analysis, not really on the topic of the debate, but just something that popped up in my mind. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the water is mission critical. If you don't have the infrastructure there to handle blowback, reduce water volumes, it could really impair your ability to prudently develop the assets. Again, kind of like the midstream situation, you just have to make sure you're partnering with guys who are developing the asset right way and have capital to manage that side of the process. A reminder, by the way, to everyone in the audience, please feel free to interact on the Q&A. We'll get it addressed if we can here as we walk through the questions. So I want to go back to operator concentration, really just the topic of how you're building your portfolio around certain operators. Talk about specialization in one lens of if an operator is a pure play basin operator, Haynesville and Appalachia are very much 
candidates for that. The other argument is, well, it doesn't matter if you're in multiple basins, the economics are the best in the Permian. So it doesn't really matter. They're not going to allocate in a negative way elsewhere, or at least in, in today's economic. How does that come into the fold? You're looking at certain operators, but you know, Rand, the operators you built your portfolio under, they're massive companies. They have global portfolios, not just multiple basins in the US. So how do you go about kind of breaking that down and the layers of analysis that follow that? Yeah, very cognizant of what other parts of those companies' portfolios were. EOG is the easier one to dissect here because they're primarily onshore U.S., large Delaware position that they tout very highly, eagle for position that they really discovered. And I think you just have to listen to the operator to some extent and then kind of read between the lines is what you're seeing and is actually happening in the field, the rigs they're running, the way they're producing the field and the assets versus, you know, the way they're talking in their quarterly investor presentations. And it just seems like a, there's a real commitment from these operators to this particular area. Could they change course, redirect capital? It's possible. But I, I just believe and it appears that these positions are competitive throughout their portfolio. And with the geographical advantages and other parts of that we talked about previously, that it's logical that whether they increase or decrease the pace of development uh, is one thing. Are they going to completely cease developing? Very difficult to see that. That being a possibility. And it's really to us, are they running three rigs? Are they running 13 rigs? I mean, that's going to be dependent on is, is WTI 45 or is it 65? A lot of that's is the way we see that correlating. I think to build on what Rand just said, I mean, with what's been going on, especially since March, uh, obviously CapEx challenges are, are hitting all operators. So even for the larger operators where they may used to focus on six to seven plays, now it's two to three. And so they are reallocating resources to those that are most economic. And so again, it's that type of exposure that we want to at least mitigate to some extent as opposed to being thoroughly exposed. I think this is where the specialization strategy really, or one of the elements where it really shines is because you can afford the time to really get to study every single operator in the area, public, private, you name it, and you understand understand their development patterns, try to talk to them to understand capital allocation and everything in between. And that really helps inform your investment strategy. Isn't guaranteed, obviously things change and certainly this summer things changed quite a bit, but I think we can be more educated and maybe a step ahead because we're so hyper-focused on a certain area and a certain subset of operators and what they're doing in that specific region. And that really kind of gives us a leg up against the competition. So what about, you know, weather events, weather related events, this kind of ties in infrastructure a little bit, it ties in where you look to build your portfolio. So I think the most obvious one, right, is hurricanes. I mean, Kevin, you and I are Houston's, so we're very much exposed to that. So if your facilities go offline, refineries, everything like that, there's flooding, what have known is really in the Anadarko here, but tornadoes, uh, to a lesser extent, probably less damage, but there's risks everywhere, weather related standpoint. How do you guys view that? from a portfolio building perspective. But I probably would think that Darren's probably the best position because he's the most broadly across the country, right? And you've also capitalized off of these things from a hedging perspective, Darren. You want to maybe do it from that angle? So yes, hedging is huge for us for our 16-year existence. Again, if we can lock in double-digit returns for our investors by securing the forward commodity price three to four years out, we'll certainly do that. So you know, going back a ways in 05, when uh, hurricanes Katrina and Rita hit, we locked in double-digit natural gas. Forward to 08, when, when crude prices reached into the 130s, we were really locked out of the acquisition market. We weren't, our price deck was significantly lower than that. So we just took a step back and, and locked in 
$130 WTI for a number of years. So that is really when I kind of go back to what we talked about looking at the macro, that those are decisions that we make whereby we lock in prices for multi-years. In terms of the weather events, as I stated earlier, uh, we don't do anything offshore Gulf of Mexico. We have some exposure to Gulf Coast, but not too much. Obviously in winter, things slow down a little bit in the Bakken, but not terribly. On a weather aspect, we're not too exposed. Same here. It's more of a concern. Cold winters up in the Bakken for us. So here's an inbound question from the audience, just like to throw it out there. And this goes back to kind of analyzing the macro environment, all the factors at play. Darren, I think that's the strength of cornerstones. How does everyone view the actions of the Fed and the prolonged low interest rates in the environment? How does that affect maybe fundraising strategies or how you're going to build your fund and the types of investors you're pursuing? I mean, minerals and royalties continues to be a good alternative asset class right now to bonds, let's say. So a bit of a different question here, but would love to hear everyone's thoughts. I think with historically low interest rates, obviously everybody's reaching for yield. So again, if you build the right portfolio on, on the mineral space, um, certainly you can compete pretty aggressively. In terms of the U.S. dollar, I think it continues to weaken over time, given the stimulus that the U.S. is throwing at everything. So again, that's another tailwind to commodity prices historically. But I think you do have some benefits here looking forward outside of just supply-demand fundamentals. So one thing I'd, I'd like to throw out there, this, let's just compare the shale basins. Eagleford's probably the most developed, you know, maybe Barnett was earlier, but when you're looking at how de-risk something is, let's look at the Anadarko 2016, right? There was a, a flood of institutional money that went in and people were buying up positions in the scoop stack. And then there was a technical reset. And now if you say Anadarko, you know, it's a bad word and I got to blur it out on the webinar here. How do you guys look at when you're entering areas, just how do you, I know there's a technical technical element, but just kind of speaking in absolutes here, just really, you know, it's more timing, commodity risk and timing risk not, is there going to be some geologic risk here or just a bit of figuring it out? And I think there's parts of the Permian that are probably like that. Anyone want to comment on the maturity of basins and, you know, this is maybe a conventional versus unconventional type argument as well, blending it in. Anyone want to take a stab? I mean, I'd say that when we got in the Eagleford, it produced nearly a billion barrels of oil already. So, I mean, there's plenty to dissect and it's produced another half a billion since we've been investing. So just to go back to the previous point on yield, investors are looking for that. This is, you know, almost like a, minerals are almost an alternative real estate play when you're looking in this environment and the ability to buy real property with that sort of mid-teen, low to mid-teens yield in areas that are proven is that's an attractive investment. Which is our thesis, right? Let somebody, let the operators get in there and prove it up and then get more comfortable buying it. But with that PUD piece, we want that upside potential, obviously. So there is risk. Uh, the Rose Hill deal that I mentioned previously is a perfect example of that, right? We, the well is underperforming. So that's obviously the type of risk we are taking along with the commodity price risk. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to an area where there's infill drilling or even, you know, Darren, if you're looking at conventional production in this environment, if you have the right IP around different EOR technologies, you can be an extremely low cost operator. So there's an argument to be made, even if it's not sexy volumes, that a lot of those fields would stay on. Any insight there? I would agree with that. I think we're in a different environment such that 
CapEx has just been slashed across the board by all operators. So that, that's an environment we haven't seen really in this uh, magnitude since, call it late 15, early 16. So development's just going to slow everywhere to some extent. And I think that that's what you really need to get your arms around going forward, or at least over the next 12 to 18 months. But you're right. I think those areas very you know cheap to extract are going to continue you know clipping along. Tim, going back to your point about risk, I mean, the way, you know, being a specialist, we knew we wanted to be in the Permian. We wanted to just pick the right spot. And so for us, and, and the reason for the Permian was just the amount of rigs running at the time and still today in terms of market share. And for us, as we looked around the Permian, we saw very delineated multi-zone co-development in Midland and the talk of multi-zone co-development in the Southern Delaware. And that really led us astray, not to say, you know, not astray, but towards the Midland. And not to say that the there wasn't the right risk-adjusted purchase price that somebody should bend to take that risk in the Delaware. But at the time when we were looking, you know, the bid ask, the, the purchase price to enter the Southern Delaware was just so high relative to the risk in terms of the bench delineation that we just couldn't justify it. And I think it goes back to, you know, our philosophy, which is, you know, trying to reduce the standard deviation of all the variables that go into the modeling of these assets. So let's go walk down memory lane and go back to March of 2020. There was so much uncertainty. So a lot of folks are saying, oh, we're going to shift to a more PDP heavy strategy. We've been buying undeveloped for the last few years, but that's what we're going to start doing. And then you had this being said, and I spoke to most of the companies out there, you know, large institutionally backed companies who were deploying 50 to 100 plus million a year. It's really hard to deploy large amounts of capital on PDP. So you know, I think Darren and, and Kevin, you guys can speak to that. You kind of have to be diversified if you're going to have a PDP heavier strategy. I think that was a lot of rhetoric. I don't know if those players that kind of had that sentiment to shift were able to really execute it since. And I, I kind of am leading that point with a question from the audience, which is the duck a duck anymore is a permit a permit. I think no one really knows or it's hard to underwrite it, which is why people were saying we're going to shift towards PDP. But let's speak to that. The scale of how you can deploy capital on the production stage of the asset and then underwriting undeveloped right now. And I think it's no coincidence that the specialized guys in this panel can take a little bit more uh, undeveloped risk than the diversified guys in this panel. And I think that's just goes back to the opening question of what's your investment structure, right? And who are your investors? So anyone want to jump in on that? Given our structure, it's such that, again, we don't have the luxury of PE type of timeframes in waiting for development to occur or a cycle to change. So again, you know, when we're looking at portfolios to acquire, not everything may fit exactly what we're looking for, but certainly if most of it does, we can carve off those pieces that don't fit our profile and simply turn around and invest them. But I think you're right in that if you're too focused to a specific area and too focused on, say, PDP, it may be very difficult to allocate funds of size in that area over a reasonable period of time. So again, that's why we again, we're pretty open to, to looking at any diverse portfolio. And then as we kind of peel away the layers, we kind of increase or decrease our interest from there. Likewise here. I mean, I'd say that if to that point, you know, somebody said, well, I'm going to go spend a billion dollars in Carnes Gonzalez and DeWitt counties. I'm sure they'd love to, but it's not possible. <laughs> it's not possible over a period of time that's uh, reasonable. It's, it's too difficult to do. And, you know, a PDP heavy strategy, I think you're right. I think if you, you have to cast a very wide net to be able to accomplish a PDP only strategy, I think it'd be really difficult to be specialized on that. I don't think you would deploy a lot of capital. 
how are you guys, you know, Jacob and Ren, how are you guys finding it right now, being able to underwrite some undeveloped activity? I know the bid ask spread, just generally speaking, with the conversations I've had, my guess is it's most severe in the Permian, just because, you know, we it was said on the last webinar, everyone on this panel is their own worst enemy because you've been educating minerals owners to expect a certain price over the last five years. And now it's like, things are a little different. Can't yeah. make that offer anymore, but that's going to take time to re-educate them, right? So how's that going? What are we, seven, eight months? into this thing we didn't do a deal from march 10th we didn't close our next deal to august 10th so the re-education process takes time and there's no shame in that it's where uh, it takes time for the delay of a couple months from the time you, you know you get your check stubs from you know you get your april check stubs for february well we've been a month into a pandemic and you're still not feeling on your check stubs it takes a while for this to really take place at the ground level i'd say one of the things that we're watching really closely is being careful on our development timing on ducks and and, and completed well and, and uncompleted wells you know, Conoco historically is from the time the rig shows up to the time first production is six months, almost on the nose. We've got to be a little careful with that right now and not get too aggressive so that we don't bring that production too far forwards and overrun our discount rates. I mean, we've been pretty active through this period. You know, I think we saw initial wave of mineral owners who were concerned about the broader economy and just wanted some near-term liquidity. And that kind of let us set some prices that we were really comfortable with even with oil prices going, going in the red. But, you know, I think for us, the biggest thing that's shifted is just the number of shots we have to take on goal. With, in a lot of cases, the bid-ask spread being wide, you know, we're just not going to get there on certain deals. However, for us, just being a, a smaller firm than, than Kevin, certainly, I'm not sure the size of the other panelists, but, you know, that just allows us to just be super focused and patient and wait for the right opportunity just because we have a, a smaller amount of capital to work. Which we don't have that luxury, right? We uh, saw 2019 Midland Basin prices were scary, very frothy. So being diversified, we could obviously pivot to other areas to get that capital deployed. I will say we've seen some uh, realistic opportunities now. So we're heavily active back in the Midland. Well, I'm going to relaunch the poll here, guys. This has been an excellent discussion. We'll wrap it up with final comments around the horn, but going ahead and relaunching the poll, let's see if the results are a little bit different. So again, building a, a minerals and royalties portfolio around diversification is the ideal strategy given the uncertainty and volatility in today's markets. It was 79% agree before. So we'll see how that shakes okay. out, but let's go around the horn. So again, thank you for all your comments. This has been excellent. For all the people in the audience, submit any final questions you have. We'll address them offline, but we'll start with Kevin. Any closing comments, just things about momentum, yeah, keep a lookout. We should have a wire going out on uh, our third fund, which is Momentum 2. We're excited about getting that uh, money deployed, actively looking at opportunities. The takeaway for us is don't put all your eggs in one basket. you got to figure out your appetite for risk and buy accordingly. So appreciate you having us today. And Darren? I would echo uh, what Kevin just stated. Uh, obviously, we've utilized a diversified approach for our 16 years of existence. That's proved our investors well. We'll continue to do that. Again, looking at on a kind of a top-down basis, at least to start getting that macro right, or at least trying to, and then utilizing our approach to assess individual portfolios. But I think the you know the mineral space is is a good place to be if you want energy exposure, private energy exposure. So again, I think given what's going on with the U.S. dollar rates in general, I think it's positive. Rent? 
Yeah, so we are, as you mentioned at the very beginning, we're finishing up Viking 3, getting ready to start raising Viking 4. Should be interesting uh, here going towards the end of the year. From us, we're seeing a lot of interesting opportunities and valuations really getting to a really interesting place for us. And we're going to continue to try to buy a prime real estate and especially at a discount right now at sub 40 WTI. And hopefully when we get to the end of the rainbow, we've got a simple, easy to understand, concentrated fund that'd be a good fight for somebody like Kevin. Hope so. Jacob? Yeah, and then thanks for Tim for hosting this. But um, you know, we're very excited about our strategy and the money we're putting to work for me. And we're finishing up our third vehicle and have a lot of drive power to spend through this cycle. And you know, I think building a concentrated position for us has been really successful, and we've gotten to know the area super well. And uh, I think we'll just continue to build on that success going forward as we uh, continue to raise and deploy our funds. Excellent. Well, the final results of the poll are 70, about 72%, uh, 28%. So there was a bit of a dip on the agree about seven, 8%. So I guess when we all get together in person, Darren and Kevin drinks are on you, right? The thumbs up goes to Jacob and Rand. So anyways, everyone, thank you for tuning in and submitting your questions. I hope everyone enjoyed. Again, please reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you if we don't have a relationship and thank you for your time. Well, have a great day. Thanks, uh, Kevin, Darren, Rannon, and Jacob. Cheers, guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Good to see you all. Yep, see ya. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties-focused executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.